You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hello, everybody. David Guzik here on a Monday afternoon, speaking to you from Santa Barbara, California. Glad that you could join me for this edition of our live question and answer program. For a couple of years now, I've been doing a weekly live Q&A, and uh, that's normally on Thursday afternoons. When the coronavirus global pandemic came along, we decided to put on more online content. We felt like people were kind of looking for it, and maybe it would be of a help and a comfort to some people. So I started doing two live question and answer programs a week, adding one on here on Mondays to our Thursday regular uh, time together. I'm going to keep doing this Monday uh, one another week after this. Next Monday will be my last regular Monday program. And uh, starting in June, we're going to go back to just one day a week, uh, the Thursday afternoon program. My normal uh, routine for these question and answer times is for me to begin with a question that I select from Facebook or YouTube comments or an email of people just asking questions. And I obviously try to pick something that I think people will be interested in and more than just the person who asked the question. And I think what we have today for a lead question is really a good question. It gets to the simple point, um, is the God of the Old Testament cold and cruel? This is an idea that a lot of people have, and I kind of understand why they get that idea from reading the Old Testament myself, but it's really one of those questions, as we think a little bit more about it, the answer becomes very clear. So let me uh, read you the question from Grateful Princess of God. She asked the question a couple days ago, and let me just read her question, and then we'll get right on going. Here we go. She says, Pastor David, someone asked me these questions, and I also asked these questions before. David sinned by stealing Uriah's wife and plotted his murder. Uzzah was struck dead because he reached out to stabilize the Ark of the Covenant. The prophet who was tricked by another old prophet was mauled to death by a lion. Why is God seemingly so cold and unfair in these Old Testament scriptures? Why does it seem like he's favoring some people like here David when Uriah seemed like a really righteous man and his life was cut short because of David's evil heart at that time? Why would God allow that prophet to be killed by a lion because he was being tricked by an old one? I hope to get some understanding because this person struggles to believe that God is good. Thank you. Well, again, grateful princess of God, thank you for the question. I'm happy to answer that and lead with that question today on our live question and answer program, because I think it's a question a lot of people have. People want to know, they say, look, it seems like God is cruel in the Old Testament, that he's cold, Uh, that maybe sometimes God is very quick to judge in the Old Testament, quick to destroy people, wipe them out. It's a common question, and I think it has a relatively simple answer. Here's the answer, and then just hold on while I explain the answer with some passages of Scripture. The answer is simply this, that the God of the Bible, the Old 
and the New Testament, the God of the whole Bible, the whole book, Old and New Testament, that God is both a God of love and a God of judgment. Now, let's face it. Some people want a God who is all love and no judgment. I understand how people want a God like that. And then there's other people. I think there's fewer people who want this, but they're out there. There's some people who want a God who is all judgment and no love. Let me tell you something. The God of the Bible is both a God of love and a God of judgment. Now, this was inherent in your question as well. Why does sometimes in some situations for some people, God show love and mercy and other times God displays his judgment to other people? We can't describe all the reasons why God might do that. Sometimes we can figure out, we say, oh, well, it's because of this and that. Other times we just don't know. But this is what we believe is that the judge of all the earth will do right. As Abraham said to God himself, I believe that's in Genesis chapter 18. We trust in that, that even when we can't figure out why God does a particular judgment or grants a particular mercy, that God in his wise plan knows what he's doing. Now, the God that's revealed to us in the Old Testament is much more gracious and loving than many people think. When God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 32, verses 6 and 7, it's like God was going to display himself and show himself to Moses. This was the big reveal of God in the Old Testament. Ready? Here it is. Exodus chapter 32, verses 6 and 7. Moses is up on Mount Sinai. God is going to reveal himself to him, and this is how God reveals himself to him. Ready? The Lord, the Lord God merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Listen, that is a God of love, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins. You see, that's a gracious God. And we see this God revealed not just in one passage in the Old Testament, but over and over again, the Old Testament God is seen to be a God of mercy and grace. I want you to consider just for a moment all of God's grace and mercy that he showed to Israel. I mean, all throughout his history, God was so gracious to Israel, even when they rejected him and sinned against him and broke the covenant that they made with him, God delayed his corrective judgment upon them as long as he possibly could. And even after God brought his judgment upon Israel, he promised restoration, and he brought restoration to them. The continual faithful love of God to Israel shows God is a God of love and grace and mercy as revealed in the Old Testament. 
I would have to actually say this. When you read the Old Testament, you'll see that there is more mercy and holding off of the judgment of God in the Old Testament than there is judgment itself. Now look, the judgments of God in the Old Testament are there. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. The world was destroyed with a flood. God brought his judgment upon the Canaanites. God brought his judgment upon Israel, the northern kingdom, and then Judah, the southern kingdom. I mean, I'm not trying to say that the Old Testament God is not revealed as a God of judgment. He is, but he is also powerfully revealed as a God of love. Now, that's the first mistake some people make. They look at the God revealed in the Old Testament and they say, ooh, that's all judgment and no love. No, it's both. God is a God of love and he's a God of judgment. Both are true in the Old Testament. But I want you to understand the God who's revealed in the New Testament, especially as he is revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the God revealed in the New Testament is more committed to righteous judgment than many people think. You see, we have two problems. We somehow fail to see all the marvelous evidences of the love and mercy of God in the Old Testament, but we also fail to see all the strong expressions of the justice and judgment and righteousness of God in the New Testament. Do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 22? This is what he said. He said, For the Father judges no one but has committed all judgment to the Son. When the world is judged, it's going to be Jesus Christ that does it. Do you consider that? Jesus is not only the one who loves the world, he's the one who judges the world. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, this is in verses five and six, that if you offend one of God's little ones, terrible judgment is waiting for you. How terrible? It would be better if a millstone, a large stone was tied around your neck and you were thrown in the street. Now, wouldn't that be a horrible way to die? Jesus says that would be better than the judgment that's waiting for you if you offend one of God's little ones. That's a God of judgment. Jesus Christ is that God of judgment. Matter of fact, Matthew chapter 25 verses 31 through 46 tell us that Jesus is the judge of all all. He sends the goats into everlasting punishment. And Jesus says he's the one who's going to do it. Matter of fact, as this works out in church history, we see it as well. In Acts chapter 5, we see that God struck some down in the early church. Ananias and Sapphira were killed out of the discipline of God. In Acts chapter 12, verses 20 through 23, God struck down Herod, giving him some wretched intestinal disease where he died being eaten by worms from the inside. God struck down that persecutor of the church. That's an expression of his judgment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 29 through 32, God's discipline in the early church among the Corinthian Christians showed that he even brought some Christians home. They died out of the judgment of God. I'll put it to you this way, from Romans chapter 1, verse 18, firmly in the New Testament, Paul wrote this, 
for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Look, here's what it is. The God of the New Testament has a lot more judgment than most people expect or observe. So it is far, far too simplistic and inaccurate to say God of judgment in the Old Testament, God of love in the New Testament. No, God of judgment and love in the Old Testament, God of judgment and love in the New Testament. Now, if you want to say, well, the judgment of God is more prominent in the Old Testament and the love of God is more prominent in the New Testament, okay, fine. If you want to say that, that's fine. I, you can make that argument if you want to. But the important thing to understand is this. The God of the Bible, Old and New Testament, is both a God of love and a God of judgment. I hope that helps you. Glad to answer that question. And before I get to those in the chat bar, oh boy, for some... You know, for some reason, I'm not seeing any action at all in our chat bar. And I'm just going to try again here. And it just makes me say that if we're not going to have any live chat, it's going to be a very quick, um, it just says error trying again. And so I'm going to be honest with you. I have no idea if this is going out live or not. Haven't received any tweets or notices that uh, it's not working. So all I can do is just go on. But let me just say this. Uh, I'm going to then give this one question. This may be the last question that we have. Um, there's a question that comes from my dear mother-in-law in Sweden. She asked this question. Why are the Jews so hated on every level and for anything and everything? It cannot only be for that they are God's chosen people. Secular countries that do not believe in hardly anything and do not know much about the Jews uh, hate them. Why? Okay, well, let me give you the basic answer to that. The basic answer is that um, excuse me, I need to look here at a tweet. At a message given to me. Okay, so apparently the problem is just with my particular computer and the chats are coming in. It is active, just not on my particular screen. So I'll do the best I can with this. It's going to be a little bit of an awkward addition as my wife, God bless you, Ingalil, messages me the questions because they're not showing up in my chat window at all. But at least I'm glad that it seems like there's some things going out. Okay, here we go. Um, the basic answer is this, anti-Semitism or Jew hatred is demonic in its origin. Listen, people don't have to believe in God at all to hate the Jews or to be anti-Semitic because Satan can prompt people who are not the people of God at all uh, or don't even believe the Bible 
to strike out against the Jews. You, you see, why is Satan so filled with hatred against the Jewish people? I'll tell you why. Because they are a chosen people. Now, make no mistake about it. We're not saying that every Jewish person is chosen for heaven. When we say the Jewish people are chosen people, we're not talking about they're all going to heaven. No, nobody goes to heaven just on the basis of genetics, so to speak. No, what we're saying is they're chosen in the sense that the Jewish people have an enduring place in God's unfolding plan of the ages. You see, Satan hates them and wants to destroy them because Satan hates the plan of God that ends in Satan's own defeat and destruction. And because the Jewish people have an enduring role in God's plan of the ages, that's why Satan hates the Jews and inspires people, whether they believe in the Bible or believe in God or not. Satan has an active role in inspiring people to hate the Jewish people. Okay, I am going to go now to my messages and look for some of the questions that have been coming in here on the messages. Again, forgive me that I have to do it this way, but it's the only way that I can do it. Jose asks, is grace the person of the Spirit of God in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29? And in Titus chapter 2, verse 12, it says that grace teaches us. Titus speaks of grace as if grace were a person. Your thoughts, please. Jose, I, I think that's very interesting, and I have a great interest in this question uh, because I've thought a lot and even written a book on the subject of God's grace. Here's how I would answer it. No, grace is not a person, but sometimes God speaks about his grace in very personal terms. In other words, the passage you're speaking about in Titus, it speaks about grace of God teaching us. And God's grace does, in fact, teach us. It is something that we learn a great deal from. But no, grace is not a person, but God is so identified with his grace that sometimes the grace of God is presented as if it was a person. It's personified, if you want to use that term. Um, Grace is so connected with the very nature of God that sometimes it can be presented in that way. So I hope that helps you there. Uh, Daniel asks this question, is the use of ancient Near East context to interpret the Old Testament a legitimate practice? Uh, what do you think of scholars such as John Walton and his view on Genesis? Okay, um, first of all, I can't speak specifically to John Walton. I'd have to know more about the specific arguments. And I know I've read some Walton in the past, but I, it just doesn't come to mind immediately to speak coherently about that. But let me just say this. Yes, it's good to know the ancient Near East context in our understanding of the Old Testament. But I think that we have to put what the Bible says first and understand that literature and the theology of the surrounding nations to understand them in light of the Bible instead of fundamentally understanding the Bible in light of them. For example, there are some similarities between uh, the Babylonian account of creation 
and the creation account in Genesis. Now, let me say something very plainly here. There are far more differences in the accounts than there are similarities. But there are some points of similarity between the two creation accounts. Well, this leads some people to say, oh, automatically, the Jewish people just received those from the Babylonians, and that's why they talk about creation. No, I would say just the opposite. I would say that the creation account given to us in the Bible is the true account of how things happened. And because it was true for all of humanity, you have echoes and impacts of that in different cultures, especially some of those ancient Near East cultures. So it's valid to study these other cultures and their literature, but I just don't think that we shape the Bible around their understanding. Rather, we make uh, the Bible primary in this revelation and look to their understanding to inform that. Okay, let me continue on with another question sent to me by my loving wife because my own chat window isn't working properly. Kristana asks, what's the difference between seeking justice and vengeance? Since vengeance is the Lord's, is it a sin for believers to sue each other after exhausting peaceful means like mediation? All right, let me give you uh, a answer to this that some people may disagree with, but I'll give you my answer. First of all, there is definitely a difference between justice and vengeance. Vengeance has the idea of personal revenge, whereas justice we understand to be done impartially. And vengeance at least has the connotation of um, giving back more than the evil somebody did to me. You know, we know this from Old Testament law, the famous passage in the book of Exodus, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And many people think that's cruel. Let me tell you, that is merciful on the part of God's law. Because in my sinful nature, if somebody does injury to my finger, I want to do injury to their whole hand or their arm. I want to inflict more upon them than they inflicted upon me. That's what I want to do in my sinful nature. What God did in the law, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, was he limited the uh, what could be taken, and he did it in the entrance of justice. Vengeance wants to take more. Justice is proportional. The penalty given is proportional to the injury that was received. So that's one difference between justice and vengeance. But I would also say to you that there is a difference between vengeance and restitution. The Bible very clearly gives us the plan that if somebody steals from another person, the ideal means of doing this is not to throw the person in jail, but for them to pay restitution, for them to restore what has been stolen, plus a little more. I think the figure in the law of Moses is 20%. So if somebody stole $100 from me, under God's law, they would have to repay me the $100 plus another $20. Again, restitution. That's not vengeance. That's restitution. That is justice under God's law. Now, a separate question. Is it a sin 
for believers to sue each other after exhausting peaceful means like mediation. I do not believe that it is in every case wrong for a believer to sue another believer. Now, I, I know that there's some people who would be alarmed by that. They would say, well, David, I know what it says in Corinthians, and I know what it says in Corinthians as well. This is what it says. It says that it is a shame to believers that that happens. And I would say, yes, indeed, it is a shame. It's a shame when things cannot be addressed through Christian mediation. That is God's plan. And it's a black mark on the church when that can't happen. But if all the efforts of mediation are refused, and as a final resort, someone needs to take them to the court of law, then I think that's permitted. It is absolutely a shame upon the church. And it should be, rather, that oftentimes people allow themselves to be defrauded, but, but certainly not in every case, or at least in my opinion, not in every case. So these are things I would say that really have to be judged on a case-by-case -case basis, but um, sometimes it just reflects a shameful state within the church. Okay, so that's my answer to that. Um, Sharon says, I hope I can watch this later. I have food on the stove. We'll be going back and forth. Well, Sharon, I hope that you can watch it later as well. Thank you for your comment there. Going on to the next question here, Agnes says, it seems like the rules for wives are longer than the husbands. Are women still being punished because Eve sinned before Adam? Well, Agnes, um, let me talk about your question here. Uh, it is true that by word count, God has more to say to the Christian wife than he has to say to the Christian husband by word count. But actually, I don't think that the requirements upon a wife are greater than the requirements upon a husband. If I could summarize what God's requirements are of a husband and a wife in a Christian marriage, it would be like this. God wants you both to die to self. And God has some things that he emphasizes in the life and the ministry of a husband, if I could use that phrase, because you could say marriage is a ministry. In a husband's role as a Christian husband, there's been some specific ways that God says, you need to die to self and do this. There are some specific ways for the Christian wife in her role to die to self and to do what God tells her to do. There's a large context in which the answer is the same for the both of them to die to self. For the husband, the emphasis is more on sacrificial love after the pattern of Jesus Christ. For the wife, the emphasis is more on godly submission and trusting God in the midst of that godly submission after the pattern of the church in the relationship between Jesus and the church. But both of them come back to death self. And that's what God requires. So I don't think we can measure this by word count, but more so just by what God uh, commands and expects of both a husband and wife. I think it's fairly equivalent, though expressed in different directions, in different ways. And then you also ask Agnes, 
are women still being punished because Eve sinned before Adam? Well, Eve, I would say, no, I wouldn't put it like that. I wouldn't put it like that, that women are still being punished. Um, instead, I would say that the fact that Eve was deceived, but Adam sinned with his eyes wide open, that affects things in time and space. And the New Testament talks about that effect, even down to the day. Um, I, I would say this. You said that Eve sinned before Adam. Uh, Agnes, kind of. This is what I mean by the kind of. You could say that Eve sinned before Adam, but as far as God is concerned, Adam is responsible for the fall of the human race and not Eve. Eve was not responsible for the fall. Adam is. And that's clear from the New Testament. Okay, let me continue on here. Go to another question here. Uh, it comes from Texas, Lioness. It says, are there any scriptures as to whether or not there will be animals in heaven? Well, this is a question that comes up from time to time. So let me give you the best question that I have. And because your little emoji or avatar there is of, looks like maybe some kind of animal, maybe you're wondering about if there uh, will be animals in heaven. Well, the Bible says that horses come from heaven because Jesus is riding a horse when he comes from heaven to earth. So apparently there's horses in heaven. Uh, so there very well could be other animals. Now, many people want to know this in regard to their own pets. Uh, will my pet be with me in heaven? And the simple answer to that question, I think it was C.S. Lewis that I first heard this answer from. C.S. Lewis basically asked this question. He said, um, if you need your animal or your pet with you in heaven for it to be heaven, then your animal will be with you. Um, so either your animal will be there, your pet, your beloved dog or cat or whatever, or you won't really care because the glory and the presence of God and the glory of heaven will be so beyond anything we can imagine that it just won't matter to you whether or not your dog or cat or whatever will be with you. So that, I think that's the best way we can answer that question. Levy asks, uh, gives this verse, Psalm 86, 5, for you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all who call upon you. Yes, Levy, thank you for that scripture. It gets back to what was our lead question today. Again, all about the fact that God is a transcendently good God and a God of judgment revealed both in the Old and the New Testament. Um, Jimmy brings a question and says, uh, Hi, Pastor David. This is Jimmy from Uganda. I'm happy I finally managed to catch you live and attend my session. My question is, who was Melchizedek? Was he Jesus or a totally different person? Uh, Levy, that's a great, or Jimmy, that's a great question. Uh, is Jesus Melchizedek? Now, we ask this question because there are appearances of Jesus before Bethlehem in the Old Testament. Now, it's not specifically said in the Old Testament that it was Jesus, but it's specifically said that God appeared in a human form. 
We find this in several places in the Old Testament. God appearing in human form to Abraham. God appearing in human form to Jacob. God appearing in human form to uh, Joshua in the first chapter of Joshua. I, I could go on and on. There are several places in the Old Testament where God appears in a human form and God the Father is spirit, is invisible. If God was going to manifest himself in a human form even before Jesus came as a baby in Bethlehem, we believe it would have been God the Son appearing in a human form before Bethlehem. Now, some people wonder if the appearance of Melchizedek in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, was in fact one of these appearances of Jesus. Let me give you the best answer I can give you, and I hope this doesn't seem a cop-out, but all I can say is, Jimmy, we don't know for sure. It could have been. It could have been an appearance of Jesus. And in the book of Hebrews, when it's describing Melchizedek, it says that he is without beginning and without end. And many people point to that and just say, oh, well, then that must mean it's Jesus. He's eternal. Well, actually, it could, in the Hebrews text, simply mean that he has no genealogy and then just disappears afterwards. He just appears right there in the book of Genesis and then only has one more mention in the book of Psalms after that. So um, it's very interesting, this appearance. It very well could be. That's why I just don't argue. If somebody wants to say, oh, I know that it was Jesus appearing as Melchizedek in the book of Genesis. Okay, well then fine, it could be. If someone says, no, it wasn't Jesus, well then fine, maybe it wasn't. I, I think we just don't have enough evidence biblically to say with certainty whether or not it was Jesus. And uh, Zachary, uh, very glad you could catch us live. Thank you for joining us. Let me go on to the next question. And again, this is a uh, different kind of uh, section here because I can't read my live chat. Uh, it's being forwarded to me by my wife in uh, instant messages. Uh, John Roberts asks, if a man divorces his wife unbiblically before he was a believer and remarries, is he committing adultery? John, let me give you a quick answer to that question and then recommend a video to you. The quick answer is no. For a much more extended answer, go to my YouTube channel and look up the video, Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage. We'll put a link to it in the descriptions. Um, I just want you to know, John, I think this is an important question. And just by the way you phrase the question to me, a man sins by divorcing his wife unbiblically. That's a sin, no doubt about it. And he does it before he's a believer. And then he remarries. Is he committing adultery? I, I don't believe so. Um, but even if he was, what is the remedy for that? You need to watch the video that I've done. Divorce, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. It's on my YouTube channel. And I think that video has been helpful to a lot of people. Um, a lot of people disagree with it. You can read that from the comments. But by the way, that's a perfect example of something that I just need to share from time to time. Uh, there's a lot of people who disagree with me when I'm giving answers to biblical questions, such especially about a controversial topic like marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Um, listen, I leave those comments up that disagree with me. I don't mind people knowing that there's people who disagree with me. 
Um, most of the time when people disagree, I don't think that they deal with what I actually deal with in the video. Maybe occasionally they do, but most of the time, I wonder if they even watch the video at all. They just gave an answer. Uh, so anyway, I recommend that to you. My quick answer would be no, but there's a lot more to it that I think needs to be understood. Uh, watch that video when you can. Uh, okay, Texas, you already asked your question there. Jesper asks a question. Hey, Jesper, nice to see you. Thank you. He says, um, how do I know if I've interpreted a passage correctly by seeing if I'm in line with the church fathers? <laughs> well, um, uh, no and yes. That's how I'd answer that question for you, Jesper. Okay, first of all, Jesper, just understand this. Um, one way that we can know if we're interpreting a Bible passage correctly is to read what God has shown other people about a particular passage. And that's one good use of Bible commentaries. You know, with rare exception, we don't want to run to the Bible commentaries first. Ideally, we're doing our own Bible reading and Bible study. But once we've done it and, and come to an understanding of what a text teaches, it's good to see what God has shown other people. And that's why we look to commentaries. And I'm in a room right now with Bible commentaries all around me. And it's a good thing to do. We should want to know uh, what other people have seen in the text. And by doing that, that can help us. Oh, wow. Maybe I didn't see this. Correctly. Oh, I didn't notice this. Oh, here's something from history or from the original language. That I didn't really know. All of that can be very, very helpful for our understanding. Regarding the church fathers, there is a lot good in the early church fathers that we can learn from. And there is something valuable in knowing what some of the earlier Christians thought about something. But it doesn't determine everything. Because the church fathers, the earliest church fathers at particular places and on particular subjects were just wrong. They didn't have it right. So we just don't say, oh, whatever the early church fathers we believe, we believe. Because first of all, there was disagreement among many of the early church fathers. But uh, even with the things they agree upon, we learn, we respect, we understand, but our final determination is from the scriptures themselves. Now, one more thing about that. When we read a commentary, and it seems to us that the commentary disagrees with what we have read in the text, don't automatically lie down for the commentary. Don't automatically think, oh, they're right and I'm wrong. No. Make them, so to speak, prove their case from the scriptures. Go back and read it again and say, if they can show me from the biblical text why I'm wrong, then I'll believe it. But if they can't show me from the biblical text, then I'm not going to believe it. I'm not going to uh, take that. Uh, I'll, I'll stick with what the text itself says, because ultimately that is our real measure, what the Bible text says. Okay, let me go on to another question here. Um, this may be our last one here, our last set of questions. Um, Jeff says, husbands have inherited a shortcoming from Adam. It is, yes, dear. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> 
Uh, that's an interesting comment. Thanks for that, Jeff. That's a funny one. Um, Jane says, hi, David. Why was Adam responsible for the fall, not Eve? Okay, I'll explain why. Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and he talks about the fact that Eve was deceived. Adam, now I'm adding onto this. Paul clearly says Eve was deceived. But as a corollary to that, we understand Adam was not deceived when he sinned. Adam sinned, so to speak, with his eyes wide open. He knew exactly what he was doing. Now, was what Eve did a sin? Yes, it was a sin. But it was different from Adam's sin. And if I could say that, it was lesser than Adam's sin. Therefore, the Bible, like when Paul talks about this in Romans chapters 5 and 6, the responsibility for the fall of the human race is placed upon Adam. Adam is the one who introduced death. Adam is the father of fallen humanity, so to speak. So Adam is responsible because he sinned without deception, knowing exactly what he was doing. Eve's guilt is lessened in some degree, not all the way, of course, but in some degree because she was deceived. And to Paul, that's a big deal. All right, just a couple more questions and we're going to end for the day. Mandy says, would you recommend fasting for deliverance? And another question, is it okay for a believer to have a business in sales selling a product? Okay, Mandy, I would put it this way. Um, yes, when a person is seeking victory, triumph in the spiritual realm, fasting is especially recommended. Now, fasting is something that can and should be a practice for people beyond that. Uh, fasting can and should be a regular practice for believers. But especially when there is a great spiritual need, when it seems like the world, the flesh, or the devil are strong and winning the day, it is especially needful to fast and to seek God, denying our flesh, putting our focus on God, and demonstrating to God how great we regard the need we are praying about. Um, so yes, I would answer that. And we draw that, of course, from what Jesus said about a demonic spirit that was apparently very difficult to cast out of a boy, and the disciples were unable to do it. And Jesus said in that regard, this kind comes out only by prayer and fasting. And then you say, uh, is it okay for a believer to have a business in sales selling a product? Well, yes, I believe so. But number one, any Christian in sales or in any other business field you got to do your business honestly. Don't lie. You can't lie about your product. You can't lie about it. You got to tell the truth because that's what Christians do. Christians tell the truth. But then secondly, you can't abuse fellowship. When you come to church, you need to come for worshiping God, hearing the word, and the fellowship of the saints. It can poison the fellowship setting of church if you make it the place to do your business. 
So don't make church a place to do your business. Make church the place where you worship God, hear his word, and minister unto one another in the fellowship of the saints. So those are two things that immediately come to mind. Maybe more things would come to mind later, but but that's what I would say, Mandy. And then finally, our last question for this session is going to be this. How much does God require, this is from the Samaritan, how much does God require Christians to fast and how often should we do it? Are there some biblical passages mentioning this? There is no biblical passage commanding how frequently we can or should fast. Um, One dear man, my father-in-law, he fasts twice a week, two separate days a week. Uh, And I know some other people who fast on a regular basis, once a month. Uh, My medical doctor, he fasts once a week. And he does it for spiritual, but also for health reasons as well, but for spiritual reasons as well. Uh, So fasting, there is no command in the scriptures, but in some way, it should be a regular practice of a believer's life. Um, And for a biblical passage mentioning this, there are a few, but I would just mention this. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus was correcting the spiritual practices of the Jewish people of his day. He corrected the way that they prayed. He corrected the way that they gave in their giving of money. And he corrected the way that they fasted and told them the right way to fast. Well, Jesus intended that they would pray just the right way, that they would give, just do it the right way, and that they would fast, just do it the right way. Jesus spoke of fasting as if it would be a Christian practice, something that Christians did. We see that about the way he talks about fasting in the Sermon on the Mount. So what we could say is, should be regular. How regular? Let's leave that between you and the Holy Spirit. Um, But never is not the right time to fast. Um, Once a month, once a quarter, once a week, twice a month, whatever, it would be good to establish that in some regular kind of basis. So I hope that's helpful to you. And I'm glad that you could join me today, even though it was, I must admit, a strange day on the live question and answer. It was a strange day because uh, I had my chat screen frozen. Through the uh, help of my loving wife, Inga Lil, she forwarded to me the chats and instant messages, and we were able to get through. I'm so glad that you could join. God bless you. And again, thank you for joining me today. We plan to get together on this Thursday for our next live question and answer. I so appreciate your prayers. I so appreciate those people who help support this work. It is a great blessing. God bless you and have a wonderful day. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.